So it's the day before the election. Big day in America. And instead of going over what's at stake in this election for the 5011th time, because I've done that pretty consistently with this podcast, especially over the last month or so, instead of doing that again, I thought I'd put in a call to the ancestors, the ones who fought, bled, some were even killed for us to have the right to vote. So no word of the week. I just want to play something for you guys. But before I play it, let me give you a little context. In 1964, Lyndon B. Johnson was running against Republican nominee Barry Goldwater, who was anti-immigration and many considered him to be a racist. He famously voted against the 1964 Civil Rights Act. During the election cycle, Martin Luther King Jr. visited Los Angeles. And I want you to hear his plea to African-American voters. I want you to think about what King is saying here. And. Think about it in terms of what's at stake in this election. Now, I'm not going to be long. I'm going to be very brief. I'm not here to make a speech. I'm here to make a plea. And I'm here to urge you to do something that I think you will do and something that I think you want to do. Suffice it to say that we stand in one of the most momentous periods of human history. And in these days of emotional tension, when the problems of the world are gigantic in extent and chaotic in detail, all men of goodwill must make the right decisions. And on Tuesday, the people of this nation must decide whether they want America to remain true to the great words of the Founding Fathers. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We must decide whether those words will be firmly etched into the structure of our nation, or whether we will allow our nation to be relegated to a second-rate power in the world with no moral voice. We must decide next Tuesday whether America will take the high road of justice and peace and compassion for the poor and underprivileged, or whether this nation will tread the low road of man's inhumanity to man, of injustice, of short-sightedness. One week from today, people of this nation must decide. And I don't think any Negro and white person of goodwill will vote for Mr. Goldwater. Very seriously, never before in the history of our nation as a candidate for the presidency taken such a negative stand on the demands of our Judeo-Christian heritage for justice and understanding goodwill and compassion for the poor and peace as has Mr. Goldwater. And so all men of goodwill will go to the polls on November the 3rd And I hope we will have a great day in our nation 
so that when we wake up on the 4th of November, we will know that America has made the right decision. So I have nothing more to add to that because Martin Luther King Jr. broke it down so it could forever be broke. The only thing I will say is I hope everybody listening exercise their right to vote. It's a fundamental right. It's a right that you have not earned. It's a right that is yours. It's a right that establishes the foundation of our country. Unfortunately, a lot during this election cycle, I've heard people talk about how voting doesn't matter and they don't understand why we continue to engage in a system that has let black people down consistently. I understand that. Certainly there's a lot that hasn't still been done in terms of reconciling some of the racial issues in America. But if you don't vote, then you're essentially saying that what has happened in America is okay. You're also giving a free pass to people in power by refusing to hold them accountable. So I really hope that the majority, if not everyone listening, really did exercise their right to vote. Voting is a significant piece of our democracy, but there is another significant component of it that directly ties into today's guest. And you heard that right, guest as in plural. A free press is essential to our democracy. I am a journalist because I believe in the free press. But I also believe that the foundation for any journalist is something I heard a long time ago. Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Both of my guests today embody that spirit of afflicting the comfortable. Should they do it every damn day? And to the most powerful person in our country, the president of the United States. Yamish Alcindor and April Ryan are two of the best and most prominent White House correspondents. I'm sure you've seen them challenge the president and other folks in his administration many, many times. This is vital and important for American citizens. The purpose of White House press briefings is to inform the public about what's happening with our government. Yamish and April are there to question and add context on behalf of the American people. They are simply two of the finest journalists in the country. April has now covered four presidential administrations, starting with Bill Clinton, for American Urban Radio Networks. Oftentimes, when it came to black issues, April was the only member of the press corps asking the presidents what their plan was for black America or how a specific piece of legislation might impact our community. Yamish has, unfortunately, only covered Donald Trump as president. And as we all see on a daily basis, that shit is often a circus. But Yamish is an excellent journalist, extremely professional, previously worked at the New York Times and USA Today. She currently covers the White House for PBS NewsHour. This presidency has been unlike any ever known in American history. Yamish and April have both had some very public clashes with the president. And we're going to talk about the impact of those clashes and what it's done to their lives. We'll also discuss how Trump has permanently changed coverage of the president. And with the election being this week, both Yamish and April will give their perspective on the biggest challenges facing Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as they try to win the White House. This is going to be dope. Yamish and April up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. (music) 
as I said in the intro, it's just a real honor to have both of you ladies on the podcast. I think this is the first time I've actually had double guests. And if anybody is deserving of this special place in the history of Jamel Hill is Unbothered, it's definitely you two um, being the fine, upstanding, uh, just tremendous journalist uh, that you are. I know NABJ is real proud right now because we got <laughs> we got generations represented here. All the awards are all here. <laughs> Between the Emerging Jur- Journalist of the Year, the Journalist of the Year, Journalist of the Year. So this is uh, this is quite a special occasion. Um, but I want to dive right into it because I think um, I have just some naturally curious ca- uh, questions about what it's like to cover the White House things. I'm sure you uh, answer all the time, but I think the public is just unaware about how this goes. But let's start from um, the beginning. And April, I'll, I'll start with you as um, as the OG <laughs> on this. I, mean I don't that, know if I like that. <laughs> no, I know the OG at, for respect purposes, right? Okay, I've been around. I've been around there. Yes, <laughs> yes, you, you've been through four presidents, girl. You, yeah, all right, <laughs> four presidents, right? Um, so let's start from uh, the beginning for both you ladies. But again, I, I'll start with you first. April is um, when did you know that this was something that you wanted to do? Like, how did you get into covering the White House? Give us your path a little bit. Well, um, I took a different journey than many people and probably both of you. I started out in radio. I started as a DJ, believe it or not. Um, I knew I, w- I know you're laughing, right? I- <laughs> <laughs> Wait, were you like, were you like top? What were you top 40? Were you pop R and B? What are we talking Jazz, about? Jazz, um, R and B. Um, April Ryan here, W-E-A-A, FM Sade. Is it a crime at 10 o'clock? Tune in. We've got more coming. She's still got that and radio again. voice, Yamiche. <laughs> and you know who, the crazy piece of it, guess who was my first program director ever? Kwaisi and Fume, now Congressman Kwaisi and Fume. Um, he was a program director at Morgan State University. I was a freshman. And I, I just felt something was missing. And I went back to what I started out with. My parents would always watch the news. I mean, listen to the news. My parents were ahead of their times. If, if there was a word called news junkies back then, they were that times a thousand. Um, they were very much about the community, about service to the community, about knowing what was going on. And I remember every night asking my dad, why are you watching the news? And he would say, now, for the average person, they would run, but I gravitated to it. He said, I want to see when the world comes to an end. You don't tell a child that. I'm saying that's kind of, that's, you know, that's, yeah, depressing. That's <laughs> but in his Jeez. way, that was his way of trying to explain to me it was so important. And he watched religiously the man who used to say that's the way it was. And I knew, I guess I knew I wanted to be in it because there was such a love for information, radio and TV. But I thought I wanted to do, to do music, be a DJ, but I wound up producing a news program. I wound up uh, anchoring. I wound up doing things in news and I fell into it. And it just, I fell into everything pretty much. I fell into the position at the White House. I was stringing every time I was around the country working or wherever station I worked for, whatever station I worked for, I would string news. And AURN said, look, we want to bring you in. And I said, okay. And they brought me in. I thought I was coming in as a DC bureau chief and I wound up being the White House correspondent. And that was 23 years ago. And we're still counting. Hmm. Uh, what about you, Yamisha? I mean, I see some similarities already because at least from what I read, your parents were also people who served the community 
and we're uh, into current events. So um, what was your pathway? How did it lead you to the White House? Can I just start by saying I think this is so dope that I get to talk to you. Um, can we just start with the fact that Abra Ryan and Jamel Hill are here and Yamish just happens to be in this? I'm super, super hyped to be here. Um, I'm like a little kid, like, yeah, I get to talk to people that I love. It's awesome. Um, so I I just want to say I, I, I admire both of you so much. I've been watching both of you so much. So it's just kind of amazing to be able to do this. Um, I was, April was a DJ and I was a slam poet. Um, I was super into writing poetry and writing short stories and thought that I was going to somehow become a fiction writer and um, learned about the story of Emmett Till when I was in high school and it, it shifted me completely. There was the moment before Emmett Till and the moment after Emmett Till and for me, learning about civil rights journalism, reading about the stories, reading about what Jet Magazine meant to African-Americans, what Ida B. Wells did for our people, I thought, okay, I definitely want to be a reporter. So I've been a street reporter. Um, I, my mom was a social worker and, and just retired. And my dad runs a large nonprofit in Haiti for disabled people. So I always had that kind of social justice gene. My parents are people who watch the news, listen to the news, understand um, politics very deeply because both of them at one point fled Haiti. Fled, they fled a dictator and, and met in Boston at Boston College when they were both um, essentially in exile from their homeland. So politics and news has always been something that's been interesting to me. And I think for a while I was, I thought I was going to be kind of a street reporter who was a national breaking news reporter who was covering Black Lives Matter, covering police shootings. But then the 2016 um, campaign came around and I got recruited by the New York Times and they said, like, why don't you go cover this guy named Bernie Sanders and see how you like that? And I fell into political reporting. I remember laughing with my husband, my boyfriend at the time, thinking I've never covered politics and here I am covering it for the New York Times. Like, what is this? Um, and it was a dream come true. It was amazing. And it got me thinking and un helped me understand how much politics has always been at the heart of civil rights in this country. That no matter what you do on the street, if you don't translate that into laws, into action, uh, into cultural shifts that start in a lot of times in legislation that, that you can't really change the country. So after the 2016 campaign um, and President Trump winning, I knew that there was going to be a big story to cover about civil rights and politics. So I essentially willed my way to the White House thinking every day I wanted to be there. And luckily enough for me, PBS NewsHour um, picked me up and, and made me a White House correspondent. Can either of you um, remember clearly the first time the president called on you um, when it was your time to ask a question? Which one? Um, well, I know for okay, you. Okay, okay, April. <laughs> April with the <laughs> sound like, uh, like which president? This one I'm sorry, not this president. I would say a well, president. Well, you said I'm OG. You said I'm yes, OG. that is true. So for you, it would have been Bill one Clinton. So under my belt. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you something. And that president, your first president will always be memorable. And this one, who will keep a lasting impression on us? But the first president for me was Bill Clinton. And I will never forget it. Um, when I came to Washington, I had a lot of people looking out for me. And my fairy godmother, if you will, one of them happened to be the late Alma Brown, the wife of the late head of the Democratic National Committee, Ron Brown. And she said, you know, Washington power is when the president calls you by name, your calls will be answered. I'm like, what? I'm like, what is she saying? Then my cousin, um, Congressman Ed Towns, his wife said, you know, Washington power is when the president calls you. I'm like, what is up with this Washington power? 
So I didn't just want Bill Clinton to call me, say, yes, you over there. He had to call me by name. So at the time at the White House, it's so different than what it is now. This was before 9-11. You could literally walk from the press area through lower press and run into the president or up the colony. You could, you could run into them. You would have conversation. It's not like it is now. We've lost so much ground in contact with the president. And I remember running into him the first time. And he didn't know me. I didn't know him. I was like, hello, sir. My name is April. I'm part of the press. He's going to leave. I said, no, 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 don't leave. I said, I'm the newest member. I'm for American Urban Radio Networks. Please call on me. My name is April Ryan. So he did. He didn't call on me the first press conference after I got there, but it was the second one. He didn't call me by name. And I told Mike McCurry, I said, look, what's up with that? And so when I saw the president again, I said, sir, will you call me by name? And he went to Mike McCurry and said, What's up? Why well, want me to call him by name? So <laughs> that's how it all started. Um, but it's it's a different day, and you, it's a different, it's a very different day, and how you relate to the president. But there is still such interaction because we are still in a, such a small place. You don't get a chance to really personally know them as much. I guess when you fly on Air Force One, and and you travel with them on Air Force One, and when you're in the pool somewhat. But it used to be you get you got to know the president a little bit more in a personal setting versus now. And that kind of contributed to him calling on me um, at that time. So do you remember the question you asked him the first one? That was like 23 years ago. I don't even remember what happened yesterday. So, <laughs> so all your questions are on official transcript. It's part of the archives. So if I look it up, I can find it. But I forgot. Now, what about you, Yvish? What was it? I can't remember the first time that President Trump called on me because, um, as April said, there's a lot of things that are that are different now. So I want to say that the first time that I that he ever took a question from me was on the the lawn of the White House when he was walking um, to the helicopter, and I was probably screaming something about, "Did you tell the truth about something? Or is there something having to do with the latest news cycle?" Since there are so many, so I can't remember the first question. I can remember the first memorable moment, and that was when in November 2018 I asked him whether or not um, he had anything to say about people thinking that he was emboldening white nationalists by calling himself a nationalist. And I remember him then calling my question racist. And I remember that being a moment where I, I recognized what it meant to be questioning the president in that way and for the president to kind of be lashing out at you and what that what that would entail. Um, so I, I remember that being the, the, the most memorable moment that I've ever been called on in a press conference. I'm not sure if he had called on me before in a press conference, but I venture to say that that was one of the first times that he called on me at a press conference. Your Misha's is right. There is a difference. This president now, the way he deals with the media, you know, the press gathering would be as he was walking to the helicopter versus being in the East Room or being in over. So it's a different type of dynamic how this president handles the press. And Yamish, you're right. I remember that press conference. That's the time that he told me to sit down. And, and, you know, that that press conference was off the chain. That's all I can say, because when he said that, I was like, and then when he said that to me, it was like, you know, sit down. I was like, but you responded to my thing. And then the next day he was talking about, I'm a loser and I'm nasty. I was like, and then talking about CNN. I said, what is he doing in my money? I said, why doesn't he rele- release his taxes instead of talking about my money? What have I got? I don't work for the government. But that was, that press conference was off the rails. And um, 
it was, I remember it like it was yesterday. I mean, and you I can tell he was mad because a lot of it had to do with the fact that they had won so badly in the midterms. Um, Democrats had retaken the House. So there was this feeling that he was already in this bad mood, um, pacing at times. He had, he had got into it with Jim Acosta that day. So when you cover President Trump especially, you get to know his moods and get to know when things have really um, gotten into a place where he's feeling bad. And that press conference, I remember thinking to myself, I think that he's really, really upset. I think that he's 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 stewing on the idea um, that he is now attached to these losses um, that have to do with the House of Representatives. And that was the day that Jim Acosta was accused of touching an intern when he did it, that propaganda video. And um, it was like I said, that press conference was off the rails. And Yamisha's right. You watch a president's body language. That's a part of your reporting, his mood, what he says, how he delivers it. And that tells you because it tells you where his mind is. But with this president, it's a little different. Well, no, it's a lot different than other presidents. I mean, this is just this president and, and how we cover it is so different. This is this presidency and the way we cover it is a polar opposite of the last three presidents that I've covered. It's, it's, it's two extremes. Yeah, I'm going to ask you some more about that, but real quick, so the people at home or the people listening can understand the contentiousness you dealt with. We have the clip from that press conference of his response, uh, him calling April a, a loser and uh, of his, you know, kind of inappropriate response to you, Unique. So here it is. Same thing with April Ryan. I watch her get up. I mean, you talk about somebody that's a loser. She doesn't know what the hell she's doing. She gets publicity and then she gets a pay raise or she gets a contract with, I think, CNN. But she's very uh, nasty and she shouldn't be. Hi, Mr. President. Yemi Shelsender with PBS NewsHour. Um, on the campaign trail, you called yourself a nationalist. Some people saw that as emboldening white nationalists. Now people are also saying that the president. I don't know why you'd that say that. That's such a racist there question. There are some people that say that no. now the Republican Party is seen as supporting white nationalists oh, because of your rhetoric. That. I don't what believe What do you that. make of that? I don't believe it. I just, well, I don't know. Why do I have my highest poll numbers ever with African Americans? Why do I have among the highest poll numbers with African Americans? I mean, why do I have my highest poll numbers? That's such a racist question. Honestly? I mean, I know you have it written down and you're going to tell me. Let me tell you, that's a racist question. And Mr. Uh, President, I, I love ask You know what the word is? I love our country. I do. You, call, you have nationalists, you have globalists. I also love the world. And I don't mind helping the world, but we have to straighten out our country first. We have a lot of problems. And Ms. Excuse me. But to say that, what you said, is so insulting to me. It's a very terrible thing that you said. And Mr. Okay, President, please, Mr. President, people have, you, you, talked about, you, talked about middle, you talked about middle class tax cuts on the campaign trail. How will you get Democrats to support that policy? Or you have to ask them. Issue? Well, hey, what's, what's your plan no, no, for working me. with Democrats you know how, on a middle class is? tax plan? You know what my plan is? I'll ask them. And if they say yes, I'm all for it. And if they say no, there's nothing you can do because you need their votes. Go ahead. Obviously, when you guys are involved in these kinds of exchanges, it becomes huge on social media. It goes viral. It becomes a, a topic to be discussed. So, um, and Yumi, I'll start with you on, on this question. Um, how do you handle that aspect of it that you've now gotten into a confrontation with the president and it's a, a little bit bigger than just you asking, doing your job and asking per, uh, the, the president a question? It becomes a huge thing. So how did you handle that, you know, kind of, would that happen and, and, and how you've handled it since? Well, I remember in the moment feeling like my ancestors are carrying me through. 
because I remember being very focused, very solid. I didn't flinch. I didn't, I, I watched that video over and I thought, yeah, I did a good job. And I felt like I did a good job because I just stayed laser focused on the job and, and stayed professional. Um, and the way that I handle that is first by calling my mom and telling her, hey, calm down. You're going to see some news clips of me. Your, your family's, the whole family from Haiti is going to be calling, asking what happened and just chill out a bit. Um, because I think my mom gets, and, and frankly, my family gets a little worried because when you go viral, it, it can be scary for people involved. Um, meaning that you can end up with a lot of hate online, a lot of Facebook hate, a lot of Twitter hate, um, and people can get nervous, frankly. So I think that that's the first thing that I do. The second thing that I do is I try my best um, to focus on the work and to try to focus on, well, what is the next story I want to do? What's the next thing that I want to do? How do I want to handle this? How do I continue to be professional and, and acknowledge that people, for the people who are supporting me without playing too much into this? Because at the end of the day, when you're a reporter, your job is to not be the story. So going viral can be really, I think, disconcerting and can be very, very um, conflicting. If you're a journalist who's just been so used to trying to be behind the scenes and trying not to be part of the story. So even as an on-air reporter, like, of course, you know my face, you see my face, I'm delivering the news, but I never want to be, well, here's what happened to me today at the White House. And a couple of times, unfortunately, I've had to say, well, here's what he said to me personally. What about uh, you, April? How did you start to handle some of these confrontations? Which, by the way, I mean, you know, Trump, uh, President Trump is one part of it, but you've had confrontations with Sean Spicer, with um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, like literally with the, with the whole cast. So and the list goes on. Daddy Huckabee, uh, Daddy Huckabee. What's the woman over at HUD? Um, I forgot her. I mean, the list goes on. And, and the 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 sad piece about it is, I'm just here to do a job. I didn't sign up for this, but I'm here to do a job. But it's not about me. It's about the issue. It's about the story. We are still a community with the highest numbers of negatives in almost every category. And before Yamish came there, before a lot of people came there, I was the only one asking a lot of those questions. And that's sad. And I'll never forget, Joy Reid said, April Ryan made asking questions about race vogue, in vogue because everybody's now asking. And that's the sad piece. But because the history of me asking the questions about a community that they didn't want to talk about raised their ire they attacked me. They went after me personally when it was about the story that they didn't like, but they wanted to go after me who's not from a larger network, who didn't have the, the infrastructure or, or the support system that they thought. They went after me in the worst kind of ways. And the residue still lingers. And this is, this is something that I'm still dealing with emotionally, mentally, and physically. I had to move my physical home because of people not understanding civics, understanding this is the natural political back and forth. Reporters asking questions of a president, the accountability piece, the First Amendment. You know, I've had the bomb squad at my home. I've had to have bodyguards. So a reporter in 2020 in the United States having to go through that, that's not, that's unheard of. And when, you know, Yamish says she called her mother, but when you are standing in front of this president at the first press conference that he's ever had 
and you ask him about his urban agenda and then he proceeds to tell you to get the meeting together with the Congressional Black Caucus and your daughter is in school looking at current events and sees it in real time and text messages, mommy, are you okay? I'm like, yes, baby, I'm great. And I'm dying on the inside. I don't know about your niche. When those things happen to me, it's like I get, it's, it, I get crazy fire on this. I'm like, oh my God, what's going on now? I wasn't prepared for this. I did not sign up for this. But at the end of the day, I stand on the shoulders of my late mother, my late father, my ancestors, my great-great-grandfather, Joseph Dollar Brown, who was sold on the auction block in Fayetteville, North Carolina, never knowing that his great-great-grand will be standing in front of the president of the United States asking questions about our people. So that's, if there is any bright spot in it, and if it advances the cause of our people, all right. So what I think is, I honestly think that being Black is training ground for doing your job under duress. I think that for a long time, I didn't realize it, but when you get through majority white elementary schools, you get through high schools where people don't think that you're going to make it to college. You get through, I went to Georgetown, majority white schools where people say things about you that you know not to be true, where people make assumptions about you that you know aren't true. And then you're working in, in majority white newsrooms where people are at times surprised by your intellect or surprised that you can write well or surprised that you can do your job well. You learn how to grin and smile and continue doing your job. And I think that for me, it's, it's felt like that. It's felt like this has been my entire life. At the end of the day, I'm here to do the work of the people. I'm here thinking about my grandmother and my grandfather who would, I don't even know what they would think about the fact that I am questioning the president because they were born in a small village in Haiti and had no idea that we would even be able to come to this country, let alone be on TV, let alone be questioning presidents. So I think that, um, Black people everywhere, when they walk up to me and say, how can you possibly put up with this? How can you possibly do your job under duress? I say, you're probably doing your job under duress. You probably have a supervisor who's told you something about yourself that's not true. You probably have somebody, a coworker, who probably stole your your, your ideas and then showed up to the meeting and, thought, and, and talked about them like they were theirs. There are so many different ways that African-Americans in particular are doing their jobs under duress, are living in this country under duress, um, that we smile and we grin and we work it out. And it's tough, but I think it's the way that we literally all are doing and surviving in this country. Yeah, that, that's such a good point because you're right. Like as, as Black people, we have to deal with micro and major aggressions all the time. So uh, unfortunately, is that you're dealing with them by somebody who should frankly know better and is supposed to represent um, our country in a way that uh, doesn't lend itself to this kind of pettiness. I mean, George Bush got a whole damn shoe thrown at him and I never see him like, oh my God, but that duck, that duck. I was like, I was like, he got a shoe thrown at him. I mean, they questioned Obama two over tan too. suits. Yeah, two shoes, right? Like, and I never seen them, you know, really act. Yeah, they would get maybe agitated and testy, but nothing like some of the um, shenanigans that we have seen from not just this president, but for also his um, administration. Uh, I have so much more I want to ask you two, um, including I have some fun questions. I know you guys are always asked about, uh, you know, the White House and heavy stuff and racism and all that, but I got some fun stuff for you all as well. So we're going to take a quick break and be right back with more from April Ryan and Yamish Alcindor.
Uh, so, you know, we were talking about how you all have gotten into some very public confrontations with the president and some of his staff. Um, what about the rest of the the press corps, um, particularly the conservative media? How do they treat you guys? Maybe April has a better answer to this, but I don't really I don't really think of myself as being treated any particular way by conservative media because I don't pay them that much attention. I don't really pay that many people an attention at all, especially in the coronavirus, because I'm so tunnel vision on what I got to do for the day that I'm not really thinking like, oh, this person was mean to me or this person's giving me a certain side eye. Like, so I, I can't tell you whether or not conservative reporters are looking at me and treating and, and wanting to treat me a certain way and, and liberal reporters are treating me in a certain way. I can't say that I definitely have some camaraderie out of some reporters that I've become friends with, um, but I don't really see myself, at least for me, as being abused or, or being um, accosted by any particular reporter or any particular outlet. April, you got a different <laughs> take on me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my experience is so different than your Misha's. Um, so before um, this president, um, during the Obama years, during the Bush years, during the Clinton years, you know, no matter your political persuasion, you just did the story. And we weren't like, conservative versus liberal or just middle of the road. It was just everybody there working. And for you to even say that, that is a difference for you to say the conservative reporters. The conservative reporters that I have found, some of them are okay, but some of them look at me as the enemy. And they were literally, I'm glad Yamish has a great experience, but they were running back. Like it was, they were telling the administration, well, April Ryan reported this, she said this and she said that. I heard from someone who used to work in the administration just this weekend. And I'm like, I, I, I don't take tea for the fever. And one thing about me, you know, if I like you, you know, if I don't, and I keep it 100 all the way, because for me, it's a life or death issue. And I don't play these games with people. And if you don't like me, let me know. Or if I feel you don't like me, I'm gonna leave you alone. But I've heard too much that I supposedly had said, or I, I had done in our little area where we are. I, I don't have time for that. I don't need anyone spying on me. I'm a grown woman. I'm 53 years old. And just go on and just say it, you know, let, let, let a sister know where you are. But, you know, it's <laughs> at the end of the day, the unfortunate thing is I'm perceived as a liberal journalist, not just a straight down the road journalist. Um, and there are people in that press corps who no matter what this president does, they support him in their thought, in their questions, and in their writing or reporting. It's not all sides of the story. It's one side, the Trump side. And I'm considered the enemy. So is that, but is that different than, like how, just explain to people, like how different that is to now than how it kind of used to be. Like I equate that as a sports journalist. There's a, a, a cardinal, you know, rule, no cheering in the press box. Like that's, that's what we say when we cover oh, games, oh. right? But you go to certain uh, areas, you know, I covered college football for a while where especially if you were down south and like there were people who would be obviously cheering in the press box. And we we're all looking like this is bizarre. But, okay. Yeah. Can talk you about say that Fox difference. News? Can you say Fox News? Total oh, you mean cheering. state? I, I call that state, state run media. TV? I do, yeah. too. Mm -hmm. OK. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there have been stories that they have they have targeted me with stories. You know, that's not myth. It's not conjecture. It's fact. I've had, um, uh, was it Tucker Carlson's little paper or whatever it is, target me. I've had Breitbart target me. I am a target. They consider me a character. I'm a human being, you know, who has 
a job as a straight up and down journalist and an analyst who comes to it from what I have seen and understand in my sourcing that is, is second to none over 23 years to, to bring to the story, but they can't stand that I am not in line with what this president wants. And I'm never going to be in line with anybody. Look, Barack Obama, I was told when Barack Obama was president, someone said, um, one of his cabinet people said, yeah, you get, you get a pass from all the black press. They said, uh-uh, there's one that's tough and she's fair. And he was talking about me. I got along with every person. They understood that I was going to ask the issues. But for whatever reason, this president and this conservative media feels that I'm a problem. But I take it as a badge of honor. Hey. Do you feel some kind of way about that, uh, Yamisha, at all? Because, I mean, you too also are a target and you're somebody that conservative media likes to um, make the center of the story. Uh, and I guess that's why I asked you how the conservative media treats you all when you're in that setting, because many of the, the networks or the media outlets they represent use you all to generate content. So, yeah, I, I really maybe it's because I don't pay people that much attention, but because I think that I really try to like avoid negative energy. Um, so I really face to face have not, no one's ever tried me. Maybe it's because I just am the I just feel like I look at people and I'm like, I, I'm at work. Like what? what? <laughs> like, so I feel like for me, I just yeah, don't she's like that. She's like that. <laughs> right, like, like, April can say it. Like, I'm like, I talk to April and I kiki he with April on the phone. But like, when I'm in the pest room, I'm 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 on deadline. I'm thinking like I gotta do stuff. I'm not really so. The, if if they are doing stuff or saying things, it just literally goes over my head. I will say, when it comes to Fox News, um, obviously that they are a, a, a network. The president loves to to be on that network. It's his favorite network. After a couple, maybe other even more conservative ones, but there are some correspondents there that are really trying to do a fair job. And I will, I'll call out John Roberts as one. The president at, uh, on the debate, the first debate, he refused to condemn white supremacists on the stage. The next day, John Roberts of Fox News and John Decker of Fox News Radio pressed this White House like no other for a answer for why that was, they weren't condemning white supremacy. And then afterwards, when Twitter got mad at John Roberts for asking that question, he said, I'm tired of y'all jumping up then down my throat, essentially. And I don't care. I'm going to continue to ask this question. Because so that's should one be story, Yamish. Yamish, so, that's one story. But I thing, get you. I, but I feel like there I feel like there, of course, is Fox News, the like opinion journalists who, and there, of course, is the arm of Fox News that does all sorts of stuff that's problematic. But there are some correspondents that work for Fox News that are trying to be fair. No, well, but but because the president does, you know, really favor Fox News, maybe own um, like some of those outlets. How how much or does it at all put you all at a at a disadvantage because he's. You know, he's going to call in the Hannity. He's going to do, you know, because he is so embedded with them. How does that affect you doing your job? So let me say this. First of all, um, there is a fight between OAN and Fox News. So the president is now having a hard time with John Roberts. It's a love-hate relationship. So he will go to OAN first sometimes in spite of, to, to spite John Roberts. So there's that tug of war within the conservative group right there. And OAN is just lapping it up. But the problem is I want to get an interview with this president. I wanted to get, I, I don't care. I want to get an interview with any president. He's the principal. He is the president of the United States. And I want him to answer questions pertaining to the black community and issues of the day. But at the end of the day, it doesn't inhibit. 
because we know who he is. We know what he's doing. It's just when he comes up with something new, we just take it and run with it. And, and the thing of it is, if you don't get the president or the principal, you know, a lot of times you don't get news from in the White House. You get, you get it from outside the White House talking to people and then you press on the inside. So that's how I've always worked. And it's always worked for me. I've broken news, still breaking news, working from home. But at the end of the day, you do want, you do want an interview with the president of the United States, even if he's called me a loser, called me nasty. I'm not. But I still want the interview. It is important. He is the president of the United States. Uh, what about you, Yumisha? Do you feel like the fact that he leans in a certain direction in terms of who he chooses to give exclusive to, that that at all hinders your reporting? I'm not sure if it hinders my reporting. I do think that it would be great to be able to interview the president and to be able to talk to him um, and, and press him one-on-one -on -one in a way that isn't just at a press conference where you maybe have two or three minutes, but rather if there was like an extended 30 minute conversation on some of his thinking on different things. So I think that that's, that's a hindrance, but I think honestly, when it comes to sourcing, when it comes to sitting down and understanding what's going on and how things are operating, I subscribe to what April said. And I, in some ways I learned some of that from April, which is you have to have sources that are telling you stuff that's happening outside and inside the white house and Capitol Hill. I covered it for, for several months um, before I came to the white house. It's a great place to get sourced. Um, everyone in Washington kind of understands it, that a lot of the stuff that you that you hear that that's happening in the White House, people from the cap from, people from Capitol Hill are the ones um, sometimes with the with the leakiest sorts of offices. So as a result, um, I think you can still break stories in this White House without President Trump um, speaking to you. And I think some of the best reporting that we've seen, some of the Pulitzer Prize reporting that we've seen, has not been because someone had a sit down interview with President Trump. It's been because they've had sources tell them all sorts of good information. Now, Yumish, uh, you, you, uh, you are in the thick of it, still going to the press briefings. April, you opted out to stop going to the briefings months ago because of uh, COVID-19 and wanting to protect yourself and thus your, your family. Yumish, uh, to be there and then to find out that the president and the first lady, and it feels like the whole damn White House all uh, tested positive for COVID. I mean, like, I was just like, okay. Um, as a, you know, as a journalist who also is trying to, to not just do your job, but stay safe. Um, just, uh, tell me what that felt like when, once you found out that COVID-19 had abruptly parked inside of the white house. It was worrisome. Um, it's scary to think that this virus that has killed more than 200,000 Americans that has killed, um, disproportionately black women and, and black people and people of color, um, that that virus is circulating in my workplace. Um, I think that I've really, really tried to take every precaution I possibly can. So I wear gloves and masks and I have a, about 18 gallons of, of hand sanitizer with me every time I walk into the White House. Um, and I, I don't, I mean, and part of the reason why I literally have this tunnel vision is because I don't, I don't stand next to people. I don't want you to be near me. I don't want to be near you. I want to be in a little booth by myself. Um, so I've been really, really very, very serious about this from the very beginning um, because I just I just understood how scary this virus is. And I also didn't want to bring it back to my husband, who also was a reporter. I didn't want to get my family sick because I went to the White House. But I think in some ways I 
feel comfortable going to the White House when I do, because I, one, go very rarely, but two, when I do go, I still think it's, especially in the middle of a pandemic, that we need to be pressing this president and this administration for questions. And the way to do that is in person. Um, so for me, I find it to be a privilege that I can still go. But I, I also understand that there are a lot of people who can't go for all sorts of health reasons. So I think that for the people who can still go and can, can remain healthy, that we should be able to do that work, for, especially with our colleagues who can't go. Um, and I think it's scary, especially, especially as we're looking at the different events where we think that this started. I was at that Supreme Court kind of super spreader event um, where now so many people have tested positive. And luckily I'm not positive, but it was it was alarming to think that I was literally in that in that space. When you look at the, the pictures, they have these wide pictures where they show you and they have numbered how many people have gotten the coronavirus. I'm literally in that picture in the background. Wow. Um, was the White House at all because I know how they came off on TV, but it seemed like they didn't understand the gravity of how that they how they put so many people in danger. I mean, again, you're not uh, you're practicing precautions with an assumption maybe that they are at least being a little bit safe. And then to find out and see how reckless they are, it's got to anger you on some level that just you could wind up being collateral damage because these people just refuse to do the most basic of things, but was there maybe privately some level of um, apologeticness or like some level of like remorse expressed by them that they had put everybody at risk this way? In this, in, in my experience, there wasn't any of that, but that's also because the president in wanting to hold these events, the president in wanting to not wear a mask, he was setting a, a culture and an example for the rest of the White House. So there are a lot of people who weren't wearing masks at the White House. There are a lot of people who are standing shoulder to shoulder. And while, of course, I feel in some ways, I feel alarmed for the White House press corps. I'm also thinking about the young press aides who are working for this president, the young staffers, not the people whose names we know, but the people who are looking at their bosses and saying, should we be wearing masks? The culture based on my sourcing is that even when they weren't on camera, they weren't wearing masks. So it wasn't it like they were putting on masks after the cameras were off and, and staying safe, no one was really being safe in, in the way that they should have been at the, at the White House. And that's why you see, at, in part, this, this outbreak at the White House. So I think in some ways, they're not remorseful because at the end of the day, the culture and how this happened started and, and, and ends with President Trump. And he continues to feel like he did the right thing. They continue to feel like they were as safe as they, as they possibly could be while still carrying on the business of the American people. Okay, because I, I foolishly was thinking that too. Like, Maybe some of this is a little bit of show where they're just trying to pretend to the American public that they're not as concerned. But then maybe when the cameras turn off, they're a little bit more careful only to find out, oh, no, they're really that dumb. Oh, oh OK. Uh, that's certainly putting things in a whole nother perspective. Um, OK, when this podcast runs, we will actually be it'll actually be the day before the presidential election. So I want to ask you both. Um, and I'll start with you, April, and then you can chime in, Yamish, is uh, what do you see as the biggest challenges for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris um, with this election, like leading into it? What are you, some of the challenges you think they'll face in trying to defeat an incumbent? You know, there are still Trump holdouts for whatever reason who don't want Kamala and who don't want Joe Biden. They can, they can try to articulate it, but it's about the fact that Donald Trump is the guy that they identify with, and that is the scary piece. In politics, people want to feel like they can relate to the person, and politics is personal. Part of the reason why we have Donald Trump is because we had Barack Obama. This whole 
political system is broken. It's been broken for a very long time. And it's broken because so many people feel that they are not touched by government, that government does not see them. I am not seen by government. I am not heard by government. And Barack Obama won by hope and change. People knew, black and white, all people knew that the system was broken, particularly as we were going into recession with George W. Bush. We were in this financially costly and physically costly war. And people said enough was enough. But then you see this black man that a lot of people still couldn't wrap their head around running the nation. So you go to a polar opposite, Donald Trump. For Barack Obama, race and politics will always follow him. And then you had someone who brought another part of change for the forgotten man. The challenge for Joe Biden is to bring all people under this umbrella. And the question is, and those who particularly are angry about Barack Obama still, and they're still calling his name. How do you do that when you have a black face on your ticket and you were mad? People were mad from the black face being the head of the ticket before and president. So I think his challenge is the Donald Trump mentality. Even if Donald Trump loses, Trumpism will still remain for a long time. It's not going to be beaten down. It's not going anywhere. And the question for me is how does Joe Biden handle that? How does he bring the forgotten man into this umbrella? They're going to come begrudgingly if they even come. How do you do that? That's, that's my thought for Joe. That's his biggest challenge right now. It's the mindset and the thought of Trumpism. I think there are twofold things. I think April really um, articulated that well. The first is, I think, can Joe Biden um, really convince people that the fear that President Trump has drummed into people all over this country, that that fear is unfounded? Because the president, um, as President Trump, has really convinced a lot of Americans that Democrats are socialists, that they're people who want to take away um, their rights, that they're people who want to take away their neighborhoods, that they want to abolish the suburbs. There are people, apart from the conspiracy theories about all sorts of things that are not true, um, but there's also the, the idea that there are people, especially I would say in, in some areas of this country, white people in particular, who are scared of diversity, who are scared of a changing country. And it's a country that is undoubtedly changing. So how does Joe Biden convince some of those people, even if he wins, even if, if, if he wins in particular, of course, but also if he's running, how does he convince those people to get on board and to not be afraid of what is going to be a changing America? The second thing I think that's going to be a big challenge is the actual process of voting. There are so many people who are already trying to vote, who are already saying their vote is, is trying to be suppressed. Republicans, based on the courts, have learned how to um, target people with surgical, African-Americans in particular, with surgical precision, one judge said in North Carolina. So Republicans are better at suppressing the vote. That, that's not, I don't think that's an opinion. I think that's objectively true, that Republicans have had the issues. They are the ones who have had the issues with redistricting, with, with targeting people. So there are polling places that are closing. May, people are going to be mail-in voting at record numbers this year. The president is the one who is controlling. President Trump is the one in control of the post office service. So I think that there's a real issue there when it comes to can people vote fairly and can Joe Biden, through whatever levers he can pull, can he make it so that he 
uh, is allowing the people who are supporting him to feel confident in the vote and to show up if they can't vote in, by mail to show up in person in the middle of a pandemic. So I think that that's going to be a big issue come the election day is whether or not people felt like they could fairly vote. Well, I can tell you this uh, for Joe Biden right now and these rights groups, uh, litig litigation groups and rights groups are now working feverishly in case of a challenge, because we know, I mean, just from what we're seeing, I mean, who, I've, I've never seen anything like this. This is 1960, 2020 version. Um, you know, people are putting ballot, but fake ballot boxes in California and black communities. And what you have to do is you have to be an advocate for your ballot to make sure your ballot is where it's supposed to be. Because, and then the post office, who would have thought that the, that the post office, the U.S. Postal Office, where we send granny her Christmas card or we get our little gifts from for, for Christmas gifts or whatever, they are now the piece that <laughs> that is, is is causing the problem. They have stolen the mailboxes off the corners and broken up the sorting machines. This is ridiculous. But at the end of the day, let's watch how Joe Biden handles this because we understand he has got a power packed group of litigants um, as well as civil rights uh, organizations that are ready at the ready to fight for this because we are, it does, it's, it's, let's just call it what it is. It's not fair now. And then when it happens, election day, let's see what happens. Because I got a feeling this is not over by any stretch of the imagination. Well, the only way it be over, that there actually be a conclusion, does it have to be a blowout? It would have to be a blowout. Well, the, I mean, the president's been clear that he feels like if he doesn't win re-election, that the election is rigged. And he's been very clear that he wants to put a Supreme Court justice on the Supreme Court to rule in his favor if there is an election challenge. So President Trump is thinking of the Supreme Court as his backup plan. Again, objective, not just opinion. So in some ways, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens on election day and the days and possibly weeks and months after. You expect a challenge. I say, do you guys expect a challenge even if it is a blowout, like it I'm doesn't not matter. Sure. I think that the president, President Trump, if it's a blowout and there's nothing to challenge and he can't physically ask for a recount, then then Republicans probably will not say we need to get a recount anyways, even if it's not um, even if it's not something that can statistically actually happen. But who knows? I mean, I think Republicans, the line that they have drawn, including Mitch McConnell, has been this peaceful transfer of power when the president said that he wouldn't commit to one. Mitch McConnell and, and a host of other Republicans said, actually, that's the way America works. We're, we, we can back the president on all sorts of other things. But when it comes to a peaceful transfer of power, we expect that to happen no matter who wins. Jamel, I love you, Mish. She's so cerebral. Let me tell you something. This is a daggone reality show, Yamish. Come on now. I got to help you understand. This man is not logical. He has already said that he is going to watch. And if he doesn't like it, guess what he's going to do? He's going to white knuckle. No, orange knuckle the resolute desk. But let me say this. On January 20th, when there is a split screen, of Joe Biden taking the oath of office and the troops going in or whatever happens on the other side, because Donald, Donald Trump is not going to go to the oath. You know that, to the swearing-in ceremony. You know that. Let's, let's call that right there. Um, but what's going to happen is, is that because I'm already I'm already producing this picture because I believe it's going to happen, this movie. Um, I just see it. I see it because we know this man. He's very theatrical. So what's going to happen is he's not going to leave. I talked to Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton said, yeah, he's going to sandbag the place. You know, he's going to sandbag <laughs> the White House. Bill Clinton said this on my IG Live. He had me laughing. 
Hillary Clinton said, yeah, and I told Joe Biden not to concede, not to concede. This is going to be reality show to the nth degree. But I talked to Eric Holder last week, former U.S. Attorney General, and I said, what's going to happen? He said, look, he said, uh-uh, it's, it's not going to be any drama. He said, because the peaceful transfer of power will happen. He said, once Joe Biden, if he is elected president on January 20th, all the codes go to Joe Biden. Trump can't hold on to that. And if he's staying in the White House, troops will just get him out. Joe Biden will officially be president. So, <laughs> Jamil, you're laughing. You know, do you know how ghetto that would be? You got to put the damn president out the White House? Like, that's some ghetto shit right there. <laughs> this is the biggest public housing. He will be evicted from public housing. Donald Trump. If Look, he, he the one that got multiple baby mamas and living on the government. So, boom, it just goes right into <laughs> It goes right into character. But no, but see, Yamish is being very esteemed and cerebral. But Yamish, we have gone to a whole nother, a whole nother level with this. And he already said there's not going to be a peaceful transition of power. So I'm gaming it out. I've talked to a former president, somebody that he went up against, the former President Clinton, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. I've even talked to Attorney General. But Donald Trump is holding on. He's going to be holding on to the resolute desk. And I'm... <laughs> Yamisha, Yamisha, I, I love her. Look at her. She's like, I'm sitting here still. <laughs> so, so good. So good, I will course. be watching. I will be watching PBS. I want to see like, her please face. Don't let this happen. She's like, I already. <laughs> She's like, why y'all wishing this evil on me? <laughs> at this point, you got to laugh to keep from crying. Because we've never seen anything like this. The founding fathers never imagined April Ryan or Yamish being at the White House reporting. And nor did they imagine Barack Obama, especially Donald John Trump. He got to get put out. It's just what it is. I, the only thing I was going to say is I think that, th that Americans maybe don't understand the miracle that is America, which is that there has been peaceful transfer of power for hundreds of years. That is not something that um, I think people who are from different other countries um, take for granted. So for me, as someone whose family, you know, my, 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 the entire reason why I'm American is because there wasn't peaceful transfer of power in Haiti, right? That's the entire reason why I'm, I'm a reporter at the White House in America and not a reporter at the White House in Haiti is because this system has worked. And in some ways, the Republicans um, saying that they believe that the system will work to me is at least evidence that the Republican Party is saying that we're not going to back a president if he loses and refuses to, to, to do the transfer of power. So I think that, you know, obviously people have been joking about this, but I think there is this real scary feeling for people that are Haitian or Venezuelan or, or Nicaraguan or so many other countries who have lived under dictatorships who are hoping that America does not turn into that because those situations can be very scary and very ugly and very deadly. That's a very good point. You're absolutely right. And I didn't think of it as that, but you are absolutely, but we have caught what he is doing. The rule of law has been broken. This president is a mini dictator. And by God, if he wins the election, rule of law will be out of the window. It's Congress will not, checks and balances will no longer be there. It will be his will, period. But at the end of the day, you laugh to keep from crying. But this president has said this, and I hate to say it, as a reporter, we've heard the Republicans saying different things before, but they always do his bidding. They have enabled him. So we just have to watch this play out. And for the sake of history and for our democracy, I pray that he acts like a, 
a statesman, a head of state. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> no, I, no, I do. I do. He's but never sad, acted that way. <laughs> right. But it's sad that you have to ask the former U.S. Attorney General who thinks that Bill Barr should be behind bars um, and a former president and a former secretary of state and other people. He, it's not we are not making this up. This president has said it over and over again. So end the story. Um, before we get to the, the fun questions, uh, which will be quick, uh, I want to ask both of you. Um, so, April, you said earlier that Trumpism is here to stay. Uh, whether he is reelected or not, it feels like the way presidents are covered have, have permanently changed, um, has permanently changed with this president in particular. So I'd love to get some thoughts from you both about how you think Trump has changed media coverage of the president. Um, April, we can go ahead as somebody who has the, the history book behind her or the, the history of covering several presidents. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, several. Don't I don't go through the whole. <laughs> the <laughs> yeah, whole I mean, hundred. you ain't covered like George Washington. I don't make it sound like yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, the hundreds of odd years of reporting covering the White House. Um, no, for the four presidents for the last 23 years, what has happened, what I've seen is the fact that when we lose ground, we don't gain it back. And briefings are so important. People like to say it's all theatrics. Oh, this one is being this and this one's getting uh, a contract with this. No, it's for transparency for the American public to understand what's on the president's mind, what's going on, the inner workings, what's on the table that you are on the table. We've lost ground with that. Yeah, they're having these hit and miss briefings. How the president formally addresses the press. It should not be, uh, you know, when you're out, when he's leaving, that's the time when you get the hit, when he's leaving to get on Marine One. You can barely hear because the chopper is going and he's running from one place to another, picking the person that he likes. You know, um, there needs to be more transparency and there needs to be, we need to bring back the friendly adversarial relationship with the press and the principles. We are not the enemy. We are the fourth estate. We are a component that the founding fathers put in the First Amendment. It is not coincidence that we're number one. We're not number two. We're not number three. We're number one. Freedom of the press. When all else fails, when the accountability piece of checks and balances fails, you have the accountability of questions, and that's leaving. John McCain was so right. When you suppress the press, dictatorship begins. So we have lost ground, and I pray that there could be a shift. I pray that Kamala Harris is right. You know, she believes in freedom of the press. I pray that Joe Biden believes it because the next president, the next press secretary are watching what this president is getting away with. And it goes down the line. Once we lose ground, we don't get it back. Uh, Yamish, how might you, or how do you think that coverage of the presidency will permanently change post-Trump? I think that reporters are going to want more access to the president. Um, I think in April, keep me honest, I think that there are, the president has definitely, President Trump has not had as many briefings. Call a name, say the name. Press secretary. There, was a, there was one press secretary who never Grisham. held a briefing at all. Stephanie Gresham, 
But when we think about, but when we think about the, the the actual president, we kind of always know what President Trump is thinking because he's either tweeting it or he were screaming questions at him while he's walking on the way to the helicopter or he's at some rally talking for an hour and a half. In some ways, we've had access to President Trump's thoughts, even though it's been in in a way where he's been able to pick and choose um, the setting, right? Unfortunately, <laughs> he's he's been able to pick and choose the setting in a lot of times. So it's been a rally, or it's been his favorite network, or it's been him calling on his favorite reporters. Um, but we've still had a pretty good idea of what President Trump is thinking day to day. I think that whoever the next president is, if it ends up being Joe Biden, I wonder if we're gonna get have to get used to a president who maybe we see once a week, who maybe we see. Um, tweet JB on once once a month. Remember when when BO was a big deal because we knew that President Obama had typed the words himself. I, I it's it'll be interesting to see if we go back to that world um, because I think there there is going to be I think some frustration on, on the part of the press because we want to, more access to the president. We want to be able to ask the president questions um, as much as possible. So I think that's going to be something that's going to be really interesting. I think the other thing um, that's going to be interesting is of course the relationship. I covered Bernie Sanders for a long time, and I, I mean. I had some contentious, um, at times viral me moments with, with Bernie Sanders when I was pressing him. And I think that both parties, um, they have this contentious relationship with the media in general. Of course, President Trump has taken it to a completely different level with calling people nasty and all sorts of stuff. He hasn't, he, he certainly lashed out way more than Bernie Sanders ever even started to do. But the point is that um, I think there's always going to be that tension there. So I'm really interested to see how that works. I also will say this is my first president. So I've only covered a reality TV president who, you know, makes campaign ads out of his entrance back to the back into the White House from the hospital. So who knows? Who knows what the next president is going to be like, you know? Do you know what we all have in common other than being black on on unbothered is that we all have been terrorized by the president or his minions and or and that's no joke i know you're right it's like we're in a special club <laughs> I, I like you but i don't want to be in the club i know between us and maxine waters and frederica Will i mean it's just a long list of people steph curry steve kerr greg popovich like what's he like lebron lebron james is in the club for doing good for people for building schools he's in the club mm. All right, before I let you guys go, uh, it's a game I like to play with all my guests on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. It's called This or That. I'm going to throw out two choices to you both. You pick one. Don't invent another choice. You get these two choices and that's it, okay? <laughs> right? Woo! <laughs> all right, first question. Kaylee McKinney or Sarah Huckabee Sanders? They're both universally bad. I can't answer that question. Next question. <laughs> I thought you might have picked Kaylee just because, April, just because you, you've had, she hasn't been in the job that long. She's a liar. She's a liar. Oh, yeah, she's a liar. She's terrible. <laughs> she's a liar. Go ahead. All right. Um, a, uh, a, a more volatile response. Uh, Mr. President, are you a racist? Or Mr. President, are you a white nationalist? <laughs> Well, okay, so I would say I would say racist because when I asked him those three times, he didn't answer. And his minion, uh, Darrell Scott, Reverend Darrell Scott, or whatever his name is, he tried to throw water on me afterwards. He tried to fight me. I got the video. Yamish didn't get all that, so I won this one. <laughs> Look at Yamish's eyes. <laughs> um, all right. Um, very fine people or stand back and stand by. Worst moment. 
I think very fine people because that's the moment that um, continues to follow him. Because after Stand Back and Stand By, he ended up eventually going on Fox News and, and condemning white supremacy and condemning the Proud Boys. But with very fine people, he kind of stuck to that language and continues to stick to that language. And it was uh, and it was one of the things that he said that Joe Biden put in his campaign ad, basically from the very beginning. It's, it's part of, I think, Joe Biden's entire thesis and argument for why he should be president. So that, I think... That, that that moment has been used against President Trump more often than the other one. I'll say stand back and stand by. And the reason why, Yamish is absolutely right on that, but the reason why I say stand back and stand by, what's in your heart comes right out. As soon as you ask a question, the answer should come right out. He did not condemn, even though he did it a couple of days later. And he did the same thing with all your races a couple of days later. He had to think about it. Okay, but the piece about stand back and stand by the ways the reason why I say it's so harsh. I talked to the head of the NAACP, Derek Johnson, who said it was like he was a general commanding his troops and they're on the ready. They're standing by to be on the ready. That's the piece that bothers me. That's the piece that bothers me. Yeah. No, it was that he was definitely giving them the bat signal. A hundred percent. So. And the fact that he struggled to like, who struggles to say white supremacy is bad? Like, who right. does what's that? in your heart? If, what's in your heart comes up right away. And what was in his heart is not to condemn. And he did it out of duress. I think what April's saying makes sense in terms of the fact that there were people who saw him as con- con- really commanding it and in some ways, um, lending credence to white supremacists. I do think that when I think about Charlottesville, I always think about Heather's um, mother because there was a young woman who died there. You know, we talk about the, the protests, but there was this woman who, uh, this young lady who died protesting against Nazis and the president said that there were still very fine people on both sides. So I think that when you think about human life and you think about how that's going to rem- be remembered in history, um, there's something about that moment, maybe it's because I, I interviewed her mom, that sticks with me and continues to stick with a lot of people in this country when you think about the fact that that's somebody who died at a civil rights protest just in the you know in modern history a, a young woman who deserves to be here yeah um both good points that you both made all right uh macaroni and cheese or greens macaroni and cheese greens what are you what are you even talking <laughs> like april that's i'm trying to get rid of the carbs I can't even b- believe that you said I'm that. I'm trying to get rid of the carbs, girl. I'm trying to be fresh. My OG trying to be fresh. <laughs> in, 20, in 2020, you said greens. That's right. Greens with some, some turkey net. Greens are not going to get Greens and turkey net. Yes, they will. Greens are literally not going to get Greens and turkey neck. Yes, they will. I, re- I reject that. You're going to end up having to dip some cornbread in your greens, and you end up with the carbs anyways. So you might as well just come on with the with the. Mentality. I am home because of underlying issues. So I take the green, sister. I take the green. And finally, Beyonce or Rihanna? Beyonce. Who run the world, girls? Who run the world, girls? Is that even a question? Clearly, it's Beyonce. Now I'm I am Caribbean, so I do love Rihanna. But Beyonce. But Beyonce is just. I mean. What, what's, what is, there's not even a question. I met Beyonce. I lost my mind. If I met Beyonce, I would probably get into trouble for crying on her and like be, and being forcing her to cradle me. <laughs> Thank you so much for everything. Thank you for, for allowing us to be here. And we look to you, you in your space and what you have done in your space and said at a time when it was not 
politically correct. And now people are seeing, sister, thank you for your conviction, your strength, and your leadership. Because we need, we look to you. I think we look to each other. Yamish? I'm saying thank you so much for both of you because I feel like um, these can be lonely and isolating and scary moments. And I think both of you have, have been supportive to me and it means everything. It, it means everything for people to see you, to really see you and know that there's a human being behind all of this. Um, I don't take that for granted. And you guys are both people that I look up to and that inspire me. Um, and especially as I think of being a, becoming a mother and being a wife and, and balancing all this stuff, it's, it's, it's remarkable that both of you have done the work that you've done. And I hope to be, pitter-pattering in your footsteps. Pitter-patter. Is that, is, that saying, is that saying something's coming? She said pitter-patter. Whoa, yummy! No. Okay. You can <laughs> try to make an announcement. Yummy. She said pitter-patter. <laughs> uh, what's coming is some macaroni and cheese and Beyonce. That's what I'm looking forward to in my future. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be back with the final segment. Y'all know what's coming up next. Fuck it, I'm bothered. It's a shame that this has to be said, but every day we need to be reminded the pandemic isn't over, people. Now, why do we need to be reminded? Because there seems to be this general attitude by Americans that COVID-19 has just decided to exit stage left, that the virus somehow came to the conclusion it wasn't going to infect anybody anymore, that it picked up its ball and went home. At least that's the way we're acting. As of the taping of this podcast, 31 states have recently seen coronavirus cases on the rise. There are 220,000 people dead. Multiple NFL teams have had to deal with positive tests. College football games are being rescheduled left and right because universities nor teams have any handle on this virus. Now, I know sports is not the most important thing happening in the country right now, but this is just a microcosm to explain a wider issue. Hell, half of the presidential administration felt like they all got COVID as well. I don't know if this is the second wave or if we're still on the original wave, but fuck it, I'm bothered because no matter what, it's clear that we have collectively stopped caring. Now, I understand that we've all had to figure out ways we can navigate around coronavirus. We're eating outdoors. Some of us have created our own COVID bubbles with trusted family and friends. Assuming the proper safety measures are being taken, okay, I get it. But far too many of us have simply said, fuck it. We don't want to be bothered with wearing masks or curbing social activities. The fact that a term such as anti-maskers exists says everything about what's going on in this country. Just think about it. When the story of how America handled coronavirus is finally written, it will show that the reason we never defeated this virus is because we were too entitled, too lazy, and too narcissistic. And trust me, the rest of the world knows it. That's why we've been pretty much banned from the rest of the world, and we're an international laughing stock. No, seriously, we are. I want you to take a listen to this COVID-denying American who tries to confront New Zealand's Deputy Prime Minister Winston Peters with a monstrously stupid accusation about the virus. Where's your evidence that there is a virus that causes the disease? Can you do that by satisfying four Sit down, sit down, sit down. We've got... Uh, someone obviously got an education in America. <laughs> 2,000, 220,000 people have died in the United States. 
There are 8 million cases today. Uh, we've got 79,000 cases probably today in India. And here's somebody who gets up and says, the earth is flat. Sorry, sunshine, wrong place. America, home of the loud and wrong. Imagine being so arrogant that you would say that in a country that has had 1,500 coronavirus cases, 25 total deaths, and is held up by pretty much everyone as a model country in terms of their coronavirus response. Unfortunately, I've come to the conclusion that because of that kind of attitude and many others that exist in this country, we're going to be largely confined to our homes for another year, maybe even longer. And even if there is a vaccine, no guarantee everybody's going to take it because surely there will be endless conspiracy theories and anti-vaxxers will be working overtime to undercut this whole process. So congratulations, America, on leading the developed world in stupidity. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Rich Berner is our technical director and Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Erica Clark and project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. Unbothered.